0: The, you kind of like this guy, but when you can't decide between the filet fish <laughs> um, or the Big Mac, and he says... I'll get you both. Thank you. You definitely <laughs> yeah, like this it. guy meal. Get it at McDonald's when you get two of your faves for just six bucks. Limited time only. Prices and participation may vary. Single item regular price. Today's episode of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products. Get a free audiobook of your choice at audible.com gold.
1: Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, an award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the Hollywood editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here in the room with Vanity Fair's film critic, Richard Lawson. Hi, Richard. Hello. And then coming in on the phone from far-flung San Francisco, it's Vanity Fair's digital director, Mike Hogan.
2: Hi, Katie. And Richard, hi. Hello. San
1: Francisco, traditional home of all Oscar buzz. Very, very application.
0: (laughs) Somewhere in the future it will be.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This week, we're in the thick of the New York Film Festival. So we'll talk about what was probably the festival's highest profile debut, Steve Jobs, starring Michael Fassbender. And from there, we asked you guys some questions on Twitter about which overdue actors or filmmakers or otherwise overlooked people you're hoping to see in the awards race this year. And then finally, we have our first ever special guest in episode two, How Lucky Are We? Uh, Jason Siegel is here to talk about his role as David Foster Wallace in this summer's The End of the Tour, which was out in July and is coming out on DVD soon. And uh, he's finding himself in contention for awards for the first time ever. I think we've been talking about his performance since Sundance, so we're kind of hoping to keep that performance out there, as is he. And then finally, we'll go big before we go home, and we'll make our boldest predictions for who will win Best Actor. So Steve Jobs, which stars Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs, made its debut at the New York Film Festival over the weekend and comes out in theaters this week. It's written by Aaron Sorkin, and that makes it an obvious comparison to The Social Network, which is about Facebook. But it's also a a really unusual movie on its own. It's all set at three different product launches over the course of Steve Jobs' life. And here's an excerpt from the trailer.
0: You're the only one who sees the world the same way I do. No one sees the world the same way you do
2: is waiting
1: Jobs is also kind of a typical Aaron Sorkin character because he's a great man who sometimes can't help being an asshole. And for some people, this is perfect Sorkin. It's like the characters from the West Wing or the social network. But then for others, like our own Mike Hogan, it is a Sorkin bridge too far. Mike, something put you over the edge about Aaron Sorkin and Steve Jobs. What happened here?
2: Well, you know, I went to the premiere at the New York Film Festival, and here's where I'm going to prove that festival fever, you know, does not afflict everybody at all times. And, you know, before the film started, Danny Boyle, was the, who's the director, was introducing everybody. He introduced Sorkin. So Sorkin walked across the stage. He's the first person to come out, and he left a lot of room for the actors to fill in. And Danny Boyle made a joke. He said Aaron has left a lot of space for the actors to improvise, That's a first. And it was a funny line, but I think it was also telling. And to me, you know, I think Michael Fassbender gives a terrific performance. I think this is a really fascinating character and a person who deserves a a film about him, or obviously multiple films, including just in this year. But to me, the kind of challenge that Sorkin set for himself to set the entire film in three, not just three individual episodes, but in three product launches, it just presents insurmountable obstacles. And so what it ends up meaning is that he has to have parallel arguments in real time with the same four people you know, at four different parallel events over the course of 15 years. And, you know, to me, I was just like, this does not I, I get like a play that's taking or a film that's kind of like a play that's taking liberties or taking chances. But this did not resemble anything uh, approximating human life, as far as I could tell. <laughs> and I just felt that it was just too much to pile onto everybody. How can you possibly make that believable? And, and there are certain films, of course, where we suspend disbelief and any film we suspend disbelief. But it starts to get, you know, there's that patented Sorkin thing where people are having an argument and somebody says something that seems like a a non-sequitur and you realize that they're answering something that came up, you know, 90 (laughs) seconds earlier or a minute and a half earlier. Well, in this film, they do that, except the thing happened 15 years earlier. And it's just too... I, I just thought... You know, God bless Michael Fassbender. I, I think he's a genius, and he's absolutely incredible in this thing. And Danny Boyle did a really great job. And Sorkin is a great writer, but I think it probably was one of those things where it was like, that's a great idea, let's keep working on it before we make an entire movie about a concept that just can't, literally can't be executed.
1: Richard?
0: Well, I mean, I'm a, a sort of shameless or slightly shameful, Sorkin of an apologist, and I don't know, Mike. I, I I think it's it's interesting. You mentioned a play, and because I, I think it it really did feel like a play, which maybe you would suspend your disbelief about what you just heard. You know, oh, you know, we know that it's fifteen years later, but like intellectually, but like emotionally, I I didn't really mind that we were sort of having these recurring sort of conversations stretched across a decade and a half. And I was just so taken with, you know, a few especially towering scenes with Fassbender and, and when he's fighting, um, arguing with Jeff Daniels, who plays, I think his name is John Scully, the former CEO of Apple. And there's one with his daughter that I, I was so swept up in the, in the writing there and the performing performances there that I, I, I was really found myself willing to, to forgive some of the sort of narrative, you know, tricks that, that are, are pretty unsubtly applied.
2: Well, and I think, you know, look, Aaron Sorkin is one of the great screenwriters of our time, right? There's no question about it. But it does feel like there comes a certain point where, you know, you get to the place where you're so big that that there's not a person that you trust there to be like, hey, you know what, I think that this needs some more work. And to me, it was, it was a case where I felt like, okay, I'm in Aaron Sorkin's world now, and this is all exactly the way he wants it to be, but there's problems with this thing. You know, there, this, this is a film that needed a little extra workshopping, in my opinion, and also maybe it wouldn't have been the worst thing if the actors had been allowed to improvise a little bit and create, you know, and focus a little bit more on create creating the kind of emotional realism rather than just hitting word for word every mm-hmm. single, you know, letter that was on the page.
1: I think the fact that two, I think two of the three major events in this take place in opera houses isn't a coincidence. Like, there is a theatricality that's built into the way that Sorkin has scripted this. And the fact that, like you were saying, Mike, all of these people have to recur in this kind of, like, an aria in an opera. Like, the theme keeps coming up over and over again. And for me, I think the trick is that Danny Boyle and Aaron Sorkin aren't necessarily a good match. Like, I don't think... I think Danny Boyle can be a really excellent director and really handles actors well. Like The performances in this are really good, because not all because of Danny Boyle, but he does a great job of working with them. But I don't think that the staginess of Sorkin and the script that he's put in matches what Danny Boyle wants to do with it. There's flashbacks that I don't know if they were in the script that kind of give you emotional detailing, but kind of take away from the perfect object structure of the script. So that it does feel to be pulling in a lot of different directions. And what you have is just these great performances in the middle of it that manage to cut through a lot of chaos around them.
2: Well, that's an interesting point because I love the social network. Me too. Uh, and I think David Fincher is obviously probably one of the most hardheaded people on the planet. And so you can imagine a really... Fruitful tug of war happening between Sorkin and Fincher, and and I do wonder if Danny Boyle was you know a little more easygoing or even maybe passive aggressively <laughs> inserting stuff into the film you know like it doesn't say here there can't be a, a split second <laughs> flashback but yeah I, I don't know to me this this didn't really have the same it, it didn't hold together the way the social network did again I mean Fassbender is a, a, a miracle in all things and in this thing no less you know. But but also there's a likability problem. I don't know about you guys, but I mean, the most likable he ever gets, and not I don't look. I don't need a movie to be uh, to be likable, but but he <laughs> he really is such a jerk. <laughs> yeah, and I, reality. And
0: I think likability we were talking about before has come in uh, you know awards wise where you can win a supporting thing for being a villain or an asshole. But I don't know if Fassbender's looking at like I mean he's kind of seems to be at the head of the pack right now uh, awards wise but uh, you know I saw the film uh, before it was a sort of not part of the festival screening a, c- a couple days before it screened uh, at the New York Film Festival and um, it was a few critics and a few um, press people and then all SAG members Ooh. and Ooh. they were really into it mm. uh, and it wasn't you know it wasn't it, these were Commercial actors and maybe guest star actors. They, it wasn't like a bunch of famous people, but, <laughs> you put it in there but they vote for the SAG awards, and yeah. you know, and they, you know, maybe some of them are in the Academy. I don't know. So, so well, it's- I mean,
2: I, I think as a as a technical, you know, performance, it's incredible, right? I mean, there's there's nothing to complain, complain about acting wise. They're taking these long takes with infinite amounts of dialogue jammed into short periods of time. You know that they have to hit every word, or, or Sorkin makes them start over. So technically speaking, it's a it's a wonderful display. You know, I just question whether the film itself is really served by by that structure.
1: Yeah, and it's not just Fast Spinner, which is really important. And like we were talking about the SAG Awards, the SAG Awards have a category for ensemble cast, which often will go to something that isn't necessarily going to win Best Picture, but has really great actors all working together. And you see all of these actors: Michael Stuhlbarg, Seth Rogen, Kate Winslet, Catherine Waterston, and my Jeff Daniels, John like Ortiz,
0: all, who n- plays the reporter. Yeah, yeah,
1: all of these people bouncing off each other in this really satisfying way. I don't think there's a bad performance in the movie, which really which should do a lot to you know keep people engaged in it, even well, if they see the problems you do.
2: You're the theater, and this thing has a theatrical
0: yeah. feel mm-hmm. for sure. To me, the big question beyond Fassbender uh, is sort of in the supporting people. Uh, I was I was debating on Twitter with somebody the other day. You know, some people are saying that we're, this is going to be Seth Rogen's first time at bat, and, and then other people are saying Jeff Daniels. I'm wondering if it could be both. That sometimes happens with supporting. Mm-hmm. Still, it doesn't really happen with the lead categories anymore. Yeah. But, but I think that it could go a lot of ways, which is exciting to watch. You know, and
1: Kate Winslet I think is worth yeah, talking about yeah. too. She's really terrific in it. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think Seth Rogen had the most. To me, was the most affecting performance and the least maybe because it was the least technical in a way, mm-hmm. it kind of, it, it, it was a nice relief from some of the pyrotechnics happening all around it.
1: And as Steve Wozniak, he's in some ways, I think, the emotional anchor of the movie. Like, it's about Steve Jobs. Too, yeah, probably. and it's, it's supposed to be about Steve Jobs and his daughter Lisa, but Lisa's played by three different actresses over the thing. I don't know that I ever totally bought his reformation as a dad. He still didn't seem like that great of a dad. Um, but with uh-huh. Wozniak, you really know that they love each other and they have this history together. And I think the structure of the movie doesn't allow for as much shared history as they probably needed. But you in those scenes together, you really feel that emotional pull, which Seth Rogen does a really good, great job with. So, Mike, anything? Uh, what do you think about this awards-wise? Is this the heavy hitter we were waiting for? Or uh, do you think it's Fassbender I, or nothing?
2: I, I don't know. I mean, it, it has Birdman-esque qualities. And, <laughs> and, you know, let's be real. Like, I thought Birdman was, was flawed as well. Although I, I liked it. I think I was less bothered by it than this. I think for acting, you know, Fassbender is a serious threat. I think it'll get nominated. I don't know. I I still haven't seen the film that just completely knocks me out where we say that's best picture. But, you know, there's a lot of years where that never happens and something has to win.
1: True. Well, to take a break from Steve Jobs, which is a huge movie, to a couple of things that we think are flying under the radar, we asked uh, people on Twitter to talk about which, either overdue or under the radar, actors or filmmakers, they were kind of hoping to see be part of the awards conversation and therefore worth us talking about. Richard, was there anyone in particular who chimed in with something you agree with?
0: You know, I thought it was interesting to see three, four, more maybe, uh, still rolling in. Jennifer Jason Leigh, who is uh, in Hateful Eight, the Quentin Tarantino film coming out at the very end of this year. Friend of the podcast and, and VF Weekend guy Joe Reed was mm-hmm. some, an early advocate of her and then some other people. So I think that's kind of curious because it's been a long time since she's been in that sort of conversation. And and we, I mean, you know, so we don't really know anything about Hateful Eight. So who knows? I heard some rumor that she doesn't speak in the movie, but I could be totally wrong about that. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, that's a funny yeah.
1: thing is predicting anything about Hateful Eight is that no one has seen it and it's probably not even finished yet. I saw at least two people chime in in the similar way with lily tomlin like uh, and b forte responded and pointed out that it would be if you won, it would be an egot for lily tomlin which is oh amazing. that's always exciting i know uh, and i watched grandma over the weekend and it's so good and she's so good in it and it's 75 minutes long which is my favorite quality in any movie yeah. um you know it's another thing where that's a small movie that's kind of a hard thing to get out of the fray but i would love for people to be talking about her more and make that possible
0: yeah and like we'll talk, t- talk about with Jason Siegel when he's on you know Grandma's a movie that opened or premiered at Sundance you know way back in January so it'll be interesting to see despite you know it's gotten a lot of good reviews Lily Tomlin is, is has I think a, a kind of sizable campaign you know engine behind her Well, and um, she's
1: worked with everybody in the industry yeah, at this and it helps that
0: she, it helps that she's also in the conversation because she has a Netflix show right now mm-hmm. like she's not just kind of coming out of
1: nowhere. Mike, anything that uh, struck you in the responses?
2: I loved what Patrick underscore Wren said, Paul Dano, For Love and Mercy. That is such a cool film. I, I saw it in uh, Toronto last year, and he becomes Brian Wilson, and, you know, in that kind of special moment where Brian Wilson was, like, first going insane. And it's just unbelievably gorgeous. And people are seeing that movie. You know, uh, our own Emily Jane Fox on the flight out to San Francisco yesterday was watching it on the plane. You know, that that thing is is actually getting out there into the world. It's one of the kind of decent movies you can watch on demand right now. I would love to see him sneak into the conversation. I, I think he could be supporting.
1: And then the last one that we heard from a couple of people uh, really just was saying Deacons, because Roger Deakins has been nominated for an Oscar uh, I think seventy times at this point probably one every year for the Oscars that have existed.
0: Yeah, the joke is that he's the cinematographer version of Susan Lucci, except Susan Lucci finally <laughs> won her she Emmy, did. and yeah. Roger Deakins is still without. So. Yeah, he did
1: No Country for Old Men. There will be blood. Unbroken last year. Skyfall. Yeah. Not uh, to
0: be morbid, he's also not a young man. So.
1: <laughs> uh, but he uh, he did Sicario this year, which I have not seen, but I am told. Old is beautiful from all corners. So. He,
0: His photography and that is the star of that movie, I think, definitely. So
2: Yeah, he's got 12 nominations. I will say it would be a little bit weird if he won. I like Sicario a lot. It'd be a little bit weird if he won for Sicario instead of No Country for Old Men or, uh, you know, Kundun, but whatever. Well,
1: you can't go happen. back in time and fix that. So uh, Kate Winslet <laughs> got her Oscar for The Reader. So. Not
0: yet anyway. That's why Mike's in Silicon Valley right now. So <laughs> build that time machine. Tesla's
1: time machine. <laughs> So after this, we'll have an interview with Jason Siegel, who is the star of End of the Tour. But first, we're going to take a quick break.
0: Today's episode of Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is offering Little Gold Men listeners a free audiobook of your choice, plus a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash gold and choose from over 180,000 audio programs and start listening. It's that easy. One book to try out on Audible is David Foster Wallace in his own words, which includes This is Water, his 2005 commencement address at Kenyon College, which I have read and listened to many times. If you want to hear that collection or any other book you're interested in, Audible has it. Go to audible.com slash gold. That's audibl ecom slash gold and get started today.
1: So we have with us as our first ever special guest, Jason Siegel, who is the star of The End of the Tour, which premiered at Sundance and opened in the theaters this summer and is coming to DVD soon. Uh, Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to be here.
3: Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure.
1: So we wanted to go back to the beginning of The End of the Tour and kind of where you started with how people were responding to this movie. And when it premiered at Sundance, what were you expecting or what were you hoping for going into that premiere and showing this to people for the first time? And then what did you get back from people?
3: It's a good question. Well, you just have no idea how it's going to go. And I went in, I went in kind of knowing that, you know, like the way that um, a body can reject a perfectly good organ and just <laughs> say, like, I'm not accepting this. Yeah, there I knew that there was some chance that no matter how good a job I did, that there's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, nope. I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. So that was a really scary thing going in. And then another thing about the movie is it's, it's about some real universal human moments and emotions that I think are really identifiable. But that being said, there's not giant plot movements in the movie. And so there's this other thing where, like, man, if people aren't into this in the first 30 minutes there's not like a bus crash that's going (laughs) to wake you up like this could be a really uncomfortable experience yeah and it just went over great yeah it went over better than i ever could have hoped for and you know i knew when i finished the movie that i had done everything that i possibly could do and i've sort of gotten to a point in my life where that has to be enough (laughs) you know what i mean like you really can't do more than what you're capable of and it, it sort of mimics a line David Foster Wallace says in the movie that was the best acting I was able to do in February of 2014
1: hmm. we actually have a clip from the movie that we can play for people who haven't seen Into the tour it's of you and Jesse Eisenberg in the diner where you're kind of uh, okay. as David Foster Wallace talking about like a Pomo version of writing about an yeah. interviewer so we can play that right now
3: you know what I would love to do man awesome. I would love to do a profile on one of you guys who's doing a profile on me mm, that is interesting or is that too you, Pomo and cute I don't know <laughs>
0: maybe for Rolling Stone but it would yeah. be
3: interesting though you think? Uh, I'm sorry, man. What's wrong? It's just you're going to go back to New York and, like, sit at your desk and shape this thing however you want. And that, I mean, to me, it's just extremely disturbing. <laughs> Why is it disturbing? Because I think I would like to shape the impression of me that's coming across. Yeah. I, I don't even know if I like you yet. I'm so nervous about whether you like me.
1: So Richard and I have both seen End of the Tour. Yeah, cool. And Richard, you were at the Sundance premiere, right?
0: Um, I went to the press screening um, early in the morning oh, yeah. and was uh, out a little late the night before uh-huh. and so got to the high school where they were screening it kind of like just in time and was tired and was sort of a little hungover. And I I was so kind of raw that I think I made me really receptive to the film. Oh, and cool. I was like crying for the last 20 minutes. Like I really, uh. really, really liked it. And it for me really emerged back in January as like, I think one of my favorite movies of the year. And it's really stuck that way. Thanks. But I think that something we're curious about, you know, for our, the purposes of this particular podcast, which is about sort of the serious kind of Oscar season and award season is how, I mean, r- awards aside, how do you kind of keep interest in the movie or sort of buzz about the movie going, you know, even though it's it screened in January, it opened this summer and now it's October. Yeah. What's that process like? And what, what, how, what role have you played in it?
3: Well, I mean, I I suppose I can only tell you my experience so far, what I've done. I'm not really that savvy about any of this stuff, and that's not me doing all shucks, like I'm really not. But we went from city to city doing the festival tour, which was the coolest thing in the world, because there's there's another question about the movie. If you don't know who David Foster Wallace is, are you going to care? And going from town to town and seeing, first of all, a lot more people knew who David Foster Wallace was than I anticipated, Mm. but... More, it becomes sort of arbitrary because it's about this sort of universal moment. So we went from town to town anyway to answer your question and did that for a while. And then it was very grassroots because it's like a really small movie. And now the movie has come out and there's sort of people see it and have a hopefully a similar reaction to what you had Stayed out too late the night before. (laughs) See the movie really raw and vulnerable. And then tell their friends about it. And so it's really catching on that way. And then it comes out on DVD on like November 3rd. And I'm sure its life continues in that. Capacity as well.
2: You might think about only showing it at like eight eight thirty a.m. in college towns, just you know, focused yeah. on hungover grad students. <laughs> no, your, t-
3: absolutely, your, who, who are looking for a little meaning, you know,
0: to yeah. life. Yeah,
3: totally. Yeah, if you go into that movie thinking like, oh, there's there's got to be more than this. <laughs> that's the exact
1: right frame of yeah.
3: mind to see the movie in. Yeah, it really worked.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it worked. Might make you rethink your career choices, but yeah. maybe that's a good thing. That's right. But are people embracing it in a different way than they would with something like forgetting Sarah Marshall or something that's bigger movie in that way
3: yeah well it's it's an entirely different experience you know I'll have people say that movie helped get me through a breakup or or sometimes you just need a little escapism like you just at the end of a hard week want to laugh this is a very different type of movie it serves a different function I think a little like going to the theater serves where you go out with your friends to watch the movie and then go talk about it afterwards that's a really special thing. I haven't been really a part of a movie like that, except I did one called Jeff Who Lives at Home mm-hmm. that maybe had a similar vibe. But this has been really neat because we, you know, we go to these towns and we do Q&As after and the Q&As aren't like, oh, was it fun to shoot in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. It was, uh, you know, we end up talking about like where you place your value and things that were sort of at the heart of David Foster Wallace's writing.
2: Yeah. Well, and I have a question. Like a, a lot of those films we're talking about, the earlier movies, are really Directly geared toward—I uh, mean, they're they're artistic, but they're artistic box office movies, commercial movies. Sure. And in this case, you know, we're here talking about—we're we're a podcast that's talking about awards this early, and part of the reason we do that is because awards kind of create a space for artistic films that are less obviously box office home runs. Yeah. And and when did that kind of. Thinking did, did that thinking kick in really early with you on this project, or did it come in later where it was like after Sundance, you guys were like, wow, this is a movie that we can do this circuit and get more eyeballs to a film.
3: I think that it's actually a little bit different than that from my perspective going in. yeah For me, what happened was I exited a period of my life where I was doing um, a lot of commercial stuff. I was on a TV show, a sitcom, which is for as inventive as the show was, and I'm so blessed to be a part of it and all of that stuff sitcom by nature is very mainstream and very commercial it's how it all works and when I exited this sort of natural decade of working really hard in that environment I had this moment where I felt just like how David Foster Wallace felt in the movie like man I just have this blank canvas in front of me now I'm 34 years old alone in a room with a piece of paper What do I do?
1: Were you 34 as well? I was 34 (laughs) as well. So there's synchronicity there. Yeah,
3: no, when I read that line, I I have to face the reality that I'm 34 years old, alone in a room with a piece of paper. I knew I had to do the movie. But I decided at that moment, like, I only want to do things that are sort of reflective of the things that I'm thinking about and feeling at this point in my life. And so, you know, nothing about the movie feels big and frankly, nothing about it feels commercial, if you're going to be really honest about it. Even when you read it on the page, it's about two authors talking, and it's about some very sensitive, nuanced human emotions. Yeah. But you make that movie so that people can have the conversation about it. It's the same reason you write Infinite Jest so that, you know, someone puts words to some, like, lonely feelings. The idea of thinking about awards going into something like that, I think, would just sabotage the process. I think you would go in with, like, a real sense of gravitas, and then you would also... I would have accomplished my biggest fear, I'm sure, which is that when you see the movie, you have this feeling of like, oh, look at Jason Siegel, try acting. <laughs> that was my nightmare. Yeah, you
1: know, was that what you like went to bed thinking like, oh God, what if that's what happened? It was
3: what I went into the movie making sure I didn't do. Like there is a, oh, look, he's, now he's trying to do this, like serious <laughs> Doing acting. big kid things. It is, yeah, that's right, playing yeah. big kid games. That was my nightmare going in that and just... Honestly, as silly as it sounds, like taking the whole thing too seriously, because one of the things that's important about it, David Foster Wallace um, was doing fairly well at this point in his life. He was 34 years old. He was a dude, you know, and he like, liked to talk about what was on the radio In these recordings that I have, um, which I got from David Lipsky, the the interview recordings, there are 20 minute sections of them digressing and talking about Hanson. <laughs> Mm. And the movies
2: got parts of that too. Yeah, like about it the does. Set.
3: Yeah, and that stuff was really important to go in. Well, and he
2: was a big defender of sort of trash TV. He was kind of an intellectual defender of mainstream commercial culture, don't you think? Yeah,
3: absolutely. Because I think that there's something. This is. I don't think it was divisive. I think it just was reality. David Foster Wallace offered a surrogate experience where he said, like, for the next thousand pages, or for the next ten pages, if it's an article, I'm you. And the only way you feel comfortable is if you feel like that's you. Mm -hmm. If you feel like it's somebody at the end of the journey who has it all figured out, then you feel like you're being talked down to. Um, And David Foster Wallace always made you feel like he was right in it with you. I just happen to be the one with the vocabulary, so let me do the talking, you know?
1: <laughs> I talked to Seth Rogen a couple days ago, actually. Yeah. He's in Steve Jobs. And I was asking him if when people are saying, because people say things to him like, you're a nightmare, like, oh, he's trying big kid acting now. Right. And I asked him if he thought that was kind of disrespectful to the way that you take comedy seriously, too. Like, you've made movies that you also took really seriously. Do you think people don't get that when, you're, when you've made your name as a comedian, that that is also hard work? <laughs>
3: I don't think, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that there's any misconception that it's hard work comedy. I think what maybe is easy to miss is that the best comedy is coming from the same question of how honest are you willing to be on screen? like really the comedy that i really respond to is is stuff where people are really kind of laying bare their feelings and then in comedy it's like in an embarrassing way or a humiliating way or something like that you know think about albert brooks in broadcast news some of those scenes where she has chosen william hurt and he's alone dealing with it drinking too much and singing to the radio mm-hmm. they're just so honest they're profoundly honest and that's why we laugh i think drama is I think it's all. I think it's all a test. Any art to me, acting, painting, writing, music is how honest are you willing to be? Uh, you know, in your in your craft. And I think also speaking about
0: Seth Rogen and and, and your your role in in End of the Tour, you know, people seem to get a kind of higher amount of acclaim sometimes for playing a real person, mm. you know, like we see that a lot, you know, at the Oscars where, you know, Eddie Redmayne's winning for Stephen Hawking or, sure. you know, things like that. Do you think that, the, do we have any sort of in, insight into why that might be, like why somehow something about an actor playing a real person has that kind of extra weight or gravitas to it? Or is it just-
3: Well, I think it, if there's any legitimacy to that, it's that you have added constraints. Right. You know what I mean? You're suddenly given a few more rules. You know the way that somebody speaks and you know the way that they move. And that can be a tool that can be helpful, but it also is a bit limiting. And so to capture something universal from somebody who you know was real, I think is a bit of a tight walk.
1: And when someone can see in someone and you did, you know, you went through the effort of trying to uh, have David Foster Wallace's voice and mannerisms. And when someone knows that and they're saying, oh, but that's really this transformation that you get to witness. Well,
3: yeah. The other thing that the other reason that maybe like you get a couple extra credit points is they have a picture they can hold up next to you.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know (laughs) what I mean? You
3: have a lot up against you. Like you can play an interview with David Foster Wallace on Charlie Rose right next to my performance so that that's, you know, the fall flat on your face factor goes up a few <laughs> degrees. Well, do the good
2: points of that outweigh the bad? Like, is it great that you can sit there and watch five hours of David Foster Wallace and master it? Or is it just like, this is a nightmare and no matter what I do, I'll never be able to match this video that exists.
3: You know, it's such an interesting question. It, it, to me, a huge part of the thing that I was battling, I can only speak for myself, is my own personal fear and insecurity, self-doubt, like I will never be able to match that. But that for me, it starts out like that and then that drives me to do everything I possibly could. I knew that if at the end of the day, I did everything that I possibly could, then all I had to face was reality maybe I'm good enough maybe I'm not but I didn't want to leave anything on the court like oh if I had just gotten that dialect coach maybe this would have gone differently
1: <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know so you, had to get, you get the right bandana and you get the right and hair and you get the dialect coach <laughs> yeah. and like
3: uh, honestly you imagine what like an actor you admire would do and you copy that
1: yeah. So you just came uh, as we talked to you from a lunch that Paul Red I think hosted for you. Yeah. And this is such a part of the process when you're keeping a film out there in the conversation. Like, what do you like? What What does having that support from friends of yours or colleagues like mean in getting the film continuing to be visible in that way?
3: Yeah. Well, it's just the nicest thing in the world that your friend does anything for you. <laughs> there's a There's a whole business side that you guys are actually probably more savvy about than I am. The fact that, you know, even, like, a friend wants to meet me for dinner always makes me feel good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so the fact that Paul would put on a suit and come down to this thing, which is sort of by its nature a little awkward. Like, you don't know anybody in the room, <laughs> and it's, it's like, very fancy pants kind of thing. Yeah. But having a buddy like Paul to do it with, you feel very at home. You, you know, make eye contact every once in a while, like... And yeah. It's you, interesting talking about. Uh, you said you know this is a kind
0: of, kind of movie where you know there's going to be a lot of conversation after you see it. You go to dinner and maybe yeah. talk about the film. Um, you did an, a luncheon a few weeks ago with Peggy Siegel yes. at I, I forget, we're forgetting Metropolitan Club or something. Another fancy pants yeah. location. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I was there at that, and there was the panel. Oh with, yes. With Dave. Yeah. And Good to see you again. You too. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but that panel discussion was one of the most lively and sort of I thought natural of these you know many luncheons that we all cool. go to. So I think that that really lends a sort of it's comfortable. It's a lot more comfortable with this a film like this.
3: Yeah. Well, it is. And I think the other thing at this point in my life, like, man, I've done some hard stuff. So for me... You just go and be yourself. What are you gonna do? Like you can't. You can only fool people for so long. <laughs> right. It becomes right. exhausting. I mean, really. Like I can't. I'm, at, at my age, I just have no desire to be anything other than what I am at this point.
1: You see, keep saying at my age, like you're 80 now. Like, I turned 80. I turn congratulations! 80. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
3: <laughs> the listeners can't see, but he, he's I'm hobbled 80, over, which makes
1: adds
2: you
3: know. to the gravitas of my performance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <Really? laughs> well,
2: playing a 34-year-old
3: is yeah. such so a stretch. So it's remarkable. <laughs> I was surprised you hadn't asked about it yet. <laughs>
2: I have I have one question just to dumb things down a little bit if you don't yeah, mind. Sure. You you've been to the Oscars, right? What's the, yes. what's the most surprising things about a thing about that people wouldn't get who are watching at home about actually just being there?
3: Oh wow, what a cool question. Boy, my experience with it was so dreamlike because I was there with the Muppets. And I also wasn't nominated, so it was pretty stress-free. The um Brett McKenzie was nominated who wrote the music, so I was there just sort of as an ambassador for the movie. I think it's that uh, for me I never stop being starstruck I like really do dork out every time to the potential like of really embarrassing myself so but it's it's really something you're surrounded by all these people that you've idolized growing up and you know contemporaries as well but when you see people like when you see Jack Nicholson you get, you freak out <laughs> did I you, do <laughs> Did you have, did you
1: go up to anyone and be like I'm sorry I just have to say hello or No
3: I tr- I didn't go up to too many people I saw Jack Nicholson out of the corner of my eye and like kind of stared at him awkwardly <laughs> for a minute and then tried to move on before it got weird <laughs>
1: that's, <Yeah>. that's fair <laughs> Yeah Jason thank you so much for joining us
3: Thank you <laughs> What a blast!
1: And finally, it's time to go big and then go home, everybody. I want you to make your boldest predictions for who you think will win Best Actress this week. And again, this is with us having almost no knowledge in some of these cases. It is your boldest prediction, Mike, at a distance in San Francisco. What's your pick?
2: I haven't even seen it yet, but I'm going with Kate Blanchett for Carol. All of my efforts to see this movie have been thwarted thus far. <laughs> um, but you know, you can't really bet bet against Kate Blanchett in general. Uh, I'm hearing amazing things about this film. I'm dying to see it. And, you know, it, it fits in with this recent kind of trend of when there is a a topic, a hot topic at play in a film, in this case, you know, gay relationships between women, that that kind of gives uh, an extra boost to a performance or to a film in terms of nominations and, and even wins. So that's, that's my bet.
1: Richard, I hear yours is similar.
2: You can bet against a Cate Blanchett
0: if you're using another Cate Blanchett (laughs) performance. (laughs) I just saw Truth, this movie where she plays Mary Mapes during the Dan Rather, George Bush military record scandal at CBS News. Um, I saw it last week. It is a little bit melodramatic, a little bit maybe too tidily kind of turned into a sort of narrative arc, but she is utterly Mesmerizing. She really takes the lead. I mean, Robert Redford is great as Dan Rather, but he's sort of more of a supporting. But Blanchett is kind of doing a variation on Jasmine from Blue Jasmine, sort of at least, you know, as she kind of gets messier and messier as this scandal unfolds. But it's just captivating. And, and she has a lot—there's a lot of stillness in Carol, but in truth, she's doing a lot. There's a lot of monologues and stuff like that. So I think that that might get the attention of a bigger pool of voters than, than the quieter work in Carol.
1: Well, if it weren't for Blue Jasmine, I would probably agree with you guys, but Kate Blanchett did win the Best Actress Oscar two years ago and to me, that seems to hobble her in a way just because traditionally we like to space things out, which is why I'm leaning on Brie Larson in Room, a movie I have already talked a lot about on this podcast and this is only episode two. Brie Larson is an up-and-coming star. She's only 25, which when you're a woman that makes you more likely to win Oscars. When you're a man, you usually have to wait till you're a little bit older and she's the anchor of this movie. It's a coming-of-age story about this boy, but as the mom, she is the emotional heart of it. She does really remarkable things. And if you've been seeing her since short-term 12, I mean, even in Trainwreck, she's great. So she's been building up a body of work. She's had a great moment to break, break through, which seems to me to kind of all add up to an oscar win this year
0: and she's had some good news this week where a lot of potential competition is now being run in supporting categories (laughs) yeah the
1: asterisk in this prediction is that uh rooney mara and carol and alicia vikander and the danish girl are now both officially running in the supporting actress category which we'll have to go big and talk about in a couple of weeks because that's because all all
0: of a sudden that's a huge category yeah all these
1: actresses who have actual lead roles are being bumped down to supporting which is fascinating and that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you so much for tuning in. And special thanks to our guest, Jason Siegel, star of End of the Tour. You can find all of us writing about award season and much more at VanityFair.com. And follow us all on Twitter. And Little Gold Men has its own Twitter feed. You might not know, at Little Gold Men. I am at Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. Richard?
0: I'm at Rylas,
2: R-I-L-A-W-S. And Mike? I'm at Mike underscore Hogan like the Hulk.
1: This episode was produced by Tim Einenkohl. Our engineer was Henry Malowski, and our senior producer was Laura Mayer. You can find this and many more great podcasts at panoply.fm